18. Let us hear the word of our God. Now there was a certain man of Ramothim, Sophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, Suth, and uh, Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of the one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Pania, Panina, and uh, Hannah. And the name, excuse me, the name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other was Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also, the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable because the Lord had closed her womb. And so it was year by year when she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her. And therefore she wept and did not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. And then she made a vow to him. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and no razor shall come upon his head. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard, and therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and he said, Go in peace, and the Lord of Israel grant your petition 
which you have asked of him. And she said, let your maidservant find favor in your sight. And so the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. And the reading of God's word there at that point. As we begin in chapter one here today, we saw in introductory comments last week that we find the book of Samuel, 1 Samuel, being a transition. We are moving from a very chaotic, ungodly time in the history of Israel. It was the period of the judges, and there was no king, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And we are seeing that in the book of 1 Samuel, we're going to see a transition from this period to where God is going to bring in a monarchy. He is going to establish a king, and uh, there will be a king who will be after his own heart, who is prefiguring the great king who will one day come. And so this book has to do with the establishment of the monarchy, has to do with Uh, political things, and all of these big things that God is going to do. But we noticed in the introduction, it begins this way. There was a certain man. Here's a family in the tribe of, uh, in the area of the tribe of uh, of Ephraim, just north of Jerusalem. And here is this man, and he's presented to us just a certain man. As we think about that, we are mindful that God is the God of history. God is working out the various details of what is to unfold here in 1 Samuel. And it begins with a woman, this man's wife, Hannah. She becomes the focal point of chapter 1 and chapter 2. And it's in her crisis of being a barren wife that this story is going to unfold And bring forth a son whose name is Samuel. And it is Samuel who is going to be used of God to begin to implement change in the nation of Israel. And in a little bit of a sense to now speak God's word and to bring a revival and to he himself uh, appoint two kings over um, Israel. The first being Saul and then following that will be the man King David. But we're invited into the story of this family. And again, we're reminded of God's providence. One, I don't know who it was, one Puritan or someone said, providence is God's way of remaining uh, anonymous. God's promise is that he is behind the scenes and God is carrying out a purpose even when he is unseen. And he's dealing with this family there in Ephraim. In the hills of Ephraim, there is this woman that God is going to greatly use to usher in this new period at this time of the monarchies. But we see this woman, and we see her plight that is given to us in this chapter. First of all, she's from a dysfunctional family, and that's not uncommon in Bible history. It's not uncommon in our world, is it? Last week... We said, I said that the story of the Bible is a story of uh, great chaos and broken people. And God is working through all of these things to yet fulfill his purpose. The story is a messy story. And here we find a family that we might say is dysfunctional. Here is Elkanah. 
He himself is a Levite, but he's living up in the area of Ephraim with his family in the city, which is throughout the rest of this book, called Ramah. He is one who we read in verse 2. This sets the stage for us. He's a man that had two wives. One was Hannah, and the second one was Panina. I'll get that right, hopefully, as we go through here. And we're told that Panina had children, but Hannah had none. She was barren. And as we look at this, probably what happened is that he had married the love of his life, which was Hannah. Hannah is unable to have children, and he takes a second wife. Now, we find this in the Bible. It's polygamy. And we know that God established marriages between one man and one woman. But we often find in the scriptures that this has been abandoned by many of the people, many, many of the prominent people in the Old Testament. And it doesn't make it right, but God tolerates it and God even uses it in spite of the fact. But everywhere that we see that there is polygamy, guess what? There are problems. There are problems. And so here is this man who takes a second wife, but the center of the story is upon this woman, Hannah, and we see her plight. She's part of a dysfunctional family, but secondly, we see that she has a problem with infertility. Two times we are told that the Lord has closed her womb. God has closed her womb. Again, we are reminded of the sovereignty of God in the lives of his people. Now, it doesn't tell us why, at this point, why God had closed her womb. We know the things revealed belong to our sons and us for all generations, but the secret things of the Lord, they belong to him. But this is helpful to us to understand that God is sovereign over our lives. He's working all things after the counsel of his own will, even when it's sometimes hard and it is difficult. And particularly women who know infertility, it is, it is a hard thing. It's a difficult thing. But we are told here that it is God who has closed her womb. And in this story, he has a purpose for this. And we know that God works all things together for good to those that love him, no matter what difficulty we may be wrestling with or struggle that we may have. This would be a hard thing for any woman of any time, but especially in this time, it was difficult. In an agrarian uh, context, where children were very vital to the life of a family, and it would be particularly a blessing to have many sons if you were a farmer, because You need workers, you need helpers, and the more children you have, particularly the more sons that you have, you have the means to prosper as a farmer. You have those in your own home that can help you and assist you in this work, and it would lead to financial stability for the family and enable them, in many cases, to be prosperous. And so it was very important to have children in a home in in this time. Also, there was no Social Security. There was no no retirement plans. Often you would be dependent upon your children to care for you as you got in your older days. And when you were 
may be unable to care for yourself. It would be very important for you to have children to care for you. My kids have already divided us up, and Kara gets her mom, and I get Kyle. So you pray for me. But uh, we, we see that they would be dependent upon their children uh, in their elderly years. And then also we know that the family line is continued on as a result of children. And also for the nation itself, the well-being of a nation was dependent upon having children, having children that would grow up and serve their country, and many serve in the armies. So even the survival of a nation is dependent upon children. And so here is the situation where Hannah is unable to have children. She is unable to produce children. And again, it's probably at this point that that Elkanah, instead of trusting the Lord and resting in the Lord, he, he goes and he finds another wife. At least that may be inferred in this. And she is very fertile. We are told that she has many children. And then we see the plight of this woman, Hannah. Often, sadly, barren women suffered shame as a result of the being infertile due to no fault of their own. But in the case of this woman, Hannah, there's another factor, and it is this second wife who is fertile, and she lets Hannah know it. And she becomes what we would call maybe a thorn in the flesh for this woman, Hannah. Two women in one house is not a good recipe. <laughs> no offense to women, but it could, be, it could be the other way around as well. One woman with two husbands. It's not designed that way, but two women in the kitchen is a problem. And it certainly is for this woman, Hannah, because Panina is not a nice woman. She is brutal to her. Read verse 6 here. Her rival, her rival provoked her severely. Why did she provoke her severely? To make her miserable. To make her miserable. So here is this adversary. And she wants to humiliate. She wants to shame Hannah. And this one who is her rival is in the very same home that she is living in. This isn't a neighbor down the road. This is someone living in her very own home. And she's provoking her. She's vexing her in order to make her miserable. This is her calling, she thinks, in life, is to make Hannah miserable. The word miserable is a word that, it comes from a word that means to thunder or to roar. First uh, Chronicles 16.32 says, Let the sea roar and all that it contains. So this might be in a picture of, of Hannah emotionally. She's like a sea that is in turmoil and is roaring, great billows, and she is stirred up. She is enraged. She is angry. And Hannah's emotions were roaring like a restless sea. No, verse 7. So it was year after year that when 
she went up, they went up, she went up to the house of the Lord that she provoked her, and therefore she wept and she did not eat. We learned that this was not a temporary thing. This is something that went on, and it says year after year. I mean, it's hard to deal with someone that's hard to live with for, you know, a shorter period of time. But when it goes on and on and on, and it's month after month and year after year, it's hard. And we understand she wept and she did not eat. And it seemed especially at the time of the year when Elkanah would take his family and they would go to Shiloh where the tabernacle was there at that particular time. And they would go there and he would offer a sacrifice. And it was a sacrifice, probably a peace offering, in which the family would also enjoy part of that sacrifice that would be made. He would sit down at table with his family. This seemed to be the time in which Pandina especially wanted to show her animosity toward Hannah. And so it was these times of the year when they would go up that she would provoke her. Dale Davis, in his commentary, imagines what it might have been like as they would sit down at this meal in Shiloh with the family and maybe how she may have provoked Hannah. He says this, and he imagines this conversation that is going on in there uh, around the dinner table. And here is Panina who first speaks. Now do you, all you children have your food? Dear me, there are so many, many of you, it's hard to keep track. Mommy, Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. What did you say, dear? I didn't hear you. I said Miss Hannah doesn't have any children. Oh, Miss Hannah? Oh, yes. That's right, she doesn't have any children. But doesn't she want children? Oh, yes, she wants children very, very much. Wouldn't you say so, Hannah? Don't you wish that you had a child too? But doesn't Daddy want Miss Hannah to have kids? Oh, certainly he does. But Miss Hannah just keeps disappointing him. She just can't have kids. Oh, by the way, Hannah, did I tell you that I'm pregnant again? You think you'll ever get pregnant too? Well, that may have been something that had crossed her mind or something that had happened, but whatever means, she did everything she could to provoke this woman, Hannah. And I think we can all sense and we can feel her pain in this difficult family life and having this woman in her own home. And it comes out in this chapter, we see that she is one who is miserable. She is one who is weeping. In verse 10, she talks about being bitter. There's this bitterness of soul. She wept in anguish. She was in affliction. She couldn't even eat. She wept, probably could not sleep at night. And then in verse 15, as she is praying, 
It says there that she was sorrowful of spirit, a sorrowful, difficult um, situation that she is in. And all of this is in the shadow of the tabernacle that this is taking place. And I think as we think about this, it's a reminder to us that as the body of Christ, that we are called to weep with those who weep. This is not a godly woman. She seems to be a great adversary of this godly woman. She is not considerate of her. She's not thoughtful of her. And we are called to be a people who weep with others who weep, who enter into their sufferings and their difficulties. We're not indifferent to them. John Calvin said every Christian should have his church enclosed within his heart and be affected with its maladies as if they were his own and sympathize with its sorrows and bewail its sins. May God make us to be a people like that more and more. I'm thankful for a people who do reach out to those in need and suffering. But may it be more and more true of us. But there is possibly another grief, another thing that added to her difficulties. And that is this, a well-meaning but sometimes inept husband. (laughs) Often a husband means well, but he doesn't really... He's sometimes clueless, clueless in Seattle. And it may seem that Elkanah is something like that. Here they are at this sacrificial meal, and what does he do? But he gives to Panina and her children their portion, but there at the table he also gives to Hannah, whom he loves, what? He gives her a double portion. Now what's that going to do in the heart of Panina? She knows that he loves her more than he loves her. And that's just going to fuel the fire. And it seems that he's insensitive to that or doesn't see that. The second thing that we see is in verse 8. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, they've gone up and they've had this meal in Shiloh, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not, or why do you weep, and why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Maybe a little insensitive to his wife here at this point. But here's the stinger. Notice what he says to her. And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? All right, wives, how would you take that? Hmm. Probably not well. Would have been better for him to say something like this. Are not you, are not you better to me than ten sons? Again, this probably also brought heartache uh, to her. A husband that loved her but maybe wasn't real sensitive or knew how to help her and encourage her at this point. And we as husbands sometimes are like that, and we need patience from our wives. 
Let me say this. I've been doing premarital counseling with Mariah and Arthur. And in the first chapter, it talks about, in that chapter, realize that your, sp- your spouse is not your savior. It is Jesus. There are things in our marriage that neither one of us can fulfill. Only Jesus can. Jesus is our hero. Jesus is the one who is our savior. And we cannot always meet the needs of others in our life. Only Jesus can. We should not expect more maybe out of a spouse than sometimes that we do. And sometimes what we need to do is lovingly push our spouse in hard and difficult times and needs that they have that we cannot meet, gently, lovingly push them to Jesus, who is the hero, who is the Savior, who can bring joy, contentment, satisfaction to their heart. And so here is this husband that is also sometimes, again, not helpful And so here is Hannah's plight, a difficult one. And then we see her prayer. There's a crucial turning point here at verse 9, that Hannah arose from the dinner and she goes into the temple or she goes to the place of the tabernacle. And it is there that she bears her heart before the Lord. There's an old Gaither song that goes like this. Where could I go? Oh, where could I go? Speaking, seeking a refuge for my soul. Needing a friend to help me in the end. Where could I go but to the Lord? This is where, this is where Hannah finally goes. After all of this time, She finally comes to the Lord and bears her burden before the Lord. She does what Peter tells us to do. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in due time, casting all of your care upon him. Why? Because he, what? Cares for you. He cares for you. And we sense as she comes in her bitterness of soul and as she comes weeping, she prays and she makes this vow to the Lord. And notice in verse 11, she made a vow and she said, O Lord of hosts. This is the second time in the Old Testament where we see the word, this phrase, Lord of hosts. The first time is in verse Two, I think it is. Um, here is the Lord of hosts. It is a picture, it's a reminder to us of our God that he is the sovereign over his creation. He is the sovereign Lord of hosts, angelic or, or armies or whatever. He is the Lord of hosts. And she comes with this sense as she prays this prayer that you are the Lord of hosts. You are the sovereign one. I think she's, she's lost sight of who her God is, but here she comes now and she's pouring out her soul. She has come to understand that he's the only one that can ultimately help her. 
And notice she says there, you will indeed look upon the affliction of your maidservant and remember me. And I think maybe she is drawing from Exodus 3 where it says of the Lord that he saw the affliction of his people down in Egypt and he remembered his covenant that he had made with Abraham. And she is crying out to this God, if you remember your people corporately, will you not remember your people individually? Will you not see me? Will you not hear me and look upon me? And so here is this prayer that she prays to the Lord. And along with it is a vow. And it talks about her giving, if the Lord should be pleased to give her a son, that she will give back this son to the Lord and a razor will not fall upon his head. This is picking up what is called the Nazarite vow in Numbers chapter 6. For a period of time, someone could make a vow and devote themselves to the Lord for a specific service, to do a certain thing or to serve and help the priest at the temple. But what Hannah does, it's kind of bewildering to us. But Lord, if you give me a son, what I'm going to do is dedicate him to you completely, fully. And what she is saying here is, he will be yours. I'm going to give him over to you. He will not live in my home. We're going to talk about this more next week because our time is running out. But I think what we see in Hannah, she comes to realize her hope is not in a son. Her hope is in her God. He is the Lord of hosts who knows me, who cares for me who provide for me. Look over at chapter 2 and verse 1 as Hannah, after she receives a son, she prays and she says, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none besides you nor is there any rock like our God. Her hopes were to have a son, and maybe part of that hope was that she would be secure, she would be okay. But she realizes that her son cannot do what only God can do. And she is willing to devote her son over to the Lord, casting herself upon her God to rest and trust in him, to provide for her whatever may come in her life. We'll pick it up there next week because there's a lot more here that we don't have time to do at this time. So here we are reminded again, who is our rock? Who is our hope? We can be like Hannah, and I think Hannah in some respect was putting too much hope in a son. What are we putting hope in? What is our confidence in? What are we trusting in? If it's anything other than the living God, it is an idol. And we are reminded by Hannah as she prays this prayer, Lord, I'm willing to give over my son to you. My trust 
is in you and in you alone, and you will care for me. You are my rock. Let's stand and we'll dismiss with a word of prayer.